December 3rd, 2019. Forbes Council's membership helps Michael Polk refresh his brand. Michael Polk has operated his own boutique real estate firm in Los Angeles for more than 25 years. He says the key to his success has been to tailor my activities towards the client's needs. Polk Properties specializes in selling and leasing commercial real estate, such as warehouses and manufacturing distribution buildings. Basically, I'll do anything, but I don't sell houses because that's not my temperament, says Polk. It takes a lot of patience to sell houses. He thinks that industrial and commercial transactions are more straightforward and based upon more practical considerations, such as the amount of available power, access to the freeway and the airport, etc. A typical client for him would be a person whose family has wealth in old properties that have appreciated and been passed down to heirs. They have to know what to do with those buildings, says Polk. That's where the broker comes in. You have to educate the client. That's why AI is never going to be able to get rid of the real estate broker, he says. You can get rid of some of the crummy ones, but my brand is a brand you can trust because I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm not there only for the money. I'm there for the long run. In addition to his real estate business, Polk is also a hard money lender, an individual lender who is not affiliated with a bank and who uses a customer's collateral or equity in property to make loans that generally carry a higher than market interest rate, but that are executed quickly. You have to be able to offer the client whatever they need, says Polk. You have to be able to change hats to make more of yourself. In the future, says Polk, each person is going to need to be a brand of their own to some degree. To that end, he pulls out all the stops to differentiate himself from the competition through creative marketing. He flies drones around building sites to share with his clients, and he's working on creating a show on his local public access television station, where he'll interview guests, such as the local tax assessor and the head of the board of supervisors. It's all part of his effort to educate the public on real estate issues and become a trusted source of information. Polk also has billboards advertising his brokerage and hard money lending businesses. When you see that billboard on the 405 freeway in Los Angeles, we're talking about branding, he says. He notes that his Forbes Real Estate Council membership branding is also prominent on the billboards. He believes that his Forbes Council's affiliation helps give him more credibility with clients. When you're engaging with someone for the first time and you show them that you're in Forbes Real Estate Council, they don't really have to ask a lot more. It's a slam dunk. Now it's up to you to know what you're talking about. But the opportunity to write those articles and not be self-serving, it's restorative to your real estate thinking process. A frequent contributor of content with Forbes Councils, Polk goes the extra mile to promote his articles by hiring a voice actress to read them on YouTube videos. What I'm doing is not all that innovative, he says. It just costs a little bit of extra money. Additionally, he regularly engages with the online forum and attends local Forbes Council's events in Los Angeles. He encourages other members with growing companies to take full advantage of membership benefits. With a new focus, you need to do a brand freshening, he says. And this is where Forbes Council's has helped a lot. What you do is let them talk.
and they'll tell you about they have pride in their holding. To hold real estate is a different type of level of involvement with the economy and with the world. Real quick, before the episode, I want to give you a gift of 25% off. And that gift actually is from TransUnion Smart Move. Go to tenantscreening.com, create a free account, enter the code FAIRLESS at checkout for 25% off your next screening. Because as landlords, we tend to be most concerned with getting paid on time. You might also know that hundreds of thousands of landlords have to deal with the headaches of evicting tenants each year. Evicting a tenant can be painful, costing as much as $10,000 in court costs and legal fees, and take as long as four weeks to complete. What if there's a trusted way to help prevent the headaches of dealing with evicting a tenant? Make the smart move right from the start. Smart Move's online tenant screening solution can help you quickly understand if you're getting a reliable tenant, which will help you avoid potential problems such as non-payment and evictions. For a limited time, listeners of this podcast are invited to try Smart Move tenant screening for 25% off. Here's how Smart Move can help you find your next great tenant. Make a more informed decision with Smart Move's proprietary credit score built specifically for tenant screening, which predicts evictions 15% better than a typical credit score. Reduce non-payment risk with Smart Move's Income Insights Report, which enables you to analyze the applicant's income within minutes and determine if additional income verification is needed. Get critical information quickly with a full credit report, criminal background, and eviction history report. With over 5 million screenings completed, SmartMove can help you make a better leasing decision for your rental property. If you own a rental property, SmartMove can help you identify the right renter from the start so you can avoid the problems of non-payment or evictions. Don't put yourself at risk. Go to tenantscreening.com, create a free account, enter the code FAIRLESS at checkout for 25% off your next screening. With TransUnion Smart Move, you'll get great reports, great convenience, great tenants. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. What's this today? Michael Polk. How you doing, Michael? Hey, I'm doing great. How you doing? I'm doing well and looking forward to our conversation. Michael is the founder of Polk Properties. He has over 30 years of real estate experience, and he's based in Long Beach, California. So with that being said, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Well, my current focus is kind of a matrix of things because I see that uh, real estate touches so many different areas. So really to segment yourself, which is a great way to accomplish things in real estate. But I like the whole tapestry so I can serve the client better. So that means that my area of focus is needs-based or the suggestion of a need that a client may not know that they have or an opportunity to offer them another way to participate in real estate outside of what they may normally have been exposed to. Having said that, my origin is in actually banking quite well. I just fell, period. However, the truth of the matter is the origin starts from banking. I was an operations officer years ago, and you learned a lot of foundational things there in regards to how accounts are handled and a different view of what the customer represents and what it represents to our economy than being a client. So that was great. And then after that, I did some more boutique style family office, real estate with a very large family in LA, Iranian Jewish family, family Balor. I learned a lot there. And then I transitioned on into downtown LA into industrial commercial real estate and real cold calling, which was great. Cold calling is a foundation of selling. If you don't talk to people, then you're never going to know what they want. 
Uh, and you got to listen. That's part of it. And then after that, a few years of doing that, I decided, hey, uh, around 93, you know what? Things aren't the greatest. So I think I'll just meet the fullness of my commissions. And then I just went on from there and just listen to what the client need. Let them tell me what they had, assess what they currently had in their portfolios and how to reposition that if they had a bigger bang for the buck with the same money. So that's enough about me. Will you give an example of the last part where work with the client? Were you working with the client in the capacity of a broker? And Yes. Okay. So you're a broker and their client had a property looking to exit out of it and then you would just help them figure out what was the best way to take that money and to buy something else? Well, that's the long and short of it. I'll try to truncate it so we don't burn up the time, but I'll give you an example. I have one client. He was lamenting, okay, he wanted a property in Marina Del Rey, California, and he had an auto rental facility. You know, he rented cars. And he says, yeah, I'm renting this place, and parking is at a premium in L.A., and especially in the Marina. So he says, look, I had everybody looking for a property, blah, blah, blah. I want to own the land under my building. Nobody found me anything. He was a referral. I forgot exactly from who. A lot of my clients are referral. Actually, most of them. So, however... I'm sitting there. Okay, I take the order. I said, I'll see what I can do. Put a little attention on it. I said, okay, this is what we're going to do. I saw a motel up the street. We're going to buy this motel. We're going to tear it down, and you're going to build your building, and that's the only way you're going to get the land. So he saw the light. Mm-hmm. He went along with it. We had to go through some hoops with the city because it was a, per se, a motel that was for the traveler. It was a, pretty much just a de facto crummy motel. Type of thing. Yep, so we I had rent that. stabilization. We had to pay the tenants that were there to relocate. So we did that. So we built the building. But in the ensuing time that that was going on, I'm looking around this guy's office and reading it. And I see these two pictures on the wall. And I'm like, okay, that doesn't comport. And I kept looking at him. Each time I sat with him, I said, hey, customer, what's that there? And he's, oh, those are a couple of houses I built down in Carlsbad. And I said, oh, yeah, how much money are you making on those houses? And he said, you know, the military guys run them, blah, blah, blah. It's not too much. I said, well, how much are those houses worth, you think? And he says, well, let's take a look. So we looked and we just watched that equity by getting rid of those houses and rolling them in a net lease investment. And then he became a man of leisure and we just kept replicating that on everything else. So what I'm saying here is that my practice is such that I see what the need of the client is. And the goal is to ask stickiness for one, you want to keep your clients. So the best way to keep your clients is to show them new concepts and how they can make money. It's not like I'm creating financialization. I'm just showing them what actually real estate consists of. And that means I have to cast a wider net than being amazing. I like how you simplified your approach, right? Your role is to show new concepts for how your clients can make more money. Is it usually in trapped equity that a property has or is it usually some unique scenario like you described earlier where your client was looking for something but he wasn't able to find it but then you identified a motel to tear down and then there is the way that they can make money and deliver on their vision well the first thing is that i was meeting the client's need see the first part is people go in and real estate brokers have outside ego and we need it. So here's out, out, out the ego, but you got to listen. 
you got to meet the first need. You got to give a, a 100% effort in hearing them. So, yeah, maybe that's not possible. But if you can make the impossible possible by actually listening, then luck plays a part. But you listen to the client, and then after that, you say, hey, you come in with literally the cross-sell. Sell that, and let's start. Take that money and start leveraging it and send your daughter to USC. You just write the check and not worry about it every year. That's the type of results you want, and that's what fosters more referrals, and people trust you more, and you feel good about the work, and you feel good about the fact that you are able to show someone a new way of thinking in something, a construct that is there for anybody to do. You just have to do it. You just have to meet the customer's need and sell them what they might not know they need, but they better need it to keep your integrity in check. What are some questions that you ask a client of yours when you're initially meeting them to identify how you can meet their needs? Well, the initial thing that I do is, like I say, most people are referral. So that means that I have some indication of what they want before I get there. But that's not always the case. And that's a whole other subject of cold calling. But we're talking about, okay, you got a warm call, you know the guy, whatever. You get there and first thing you do, you go in, you look around the office. You sit there, don't rush it, don't push up on them, just settle in. They have a business, they're operating it, let them tend to their whatever it is they're doing, fill in the blank of what the business is and what they're doing. And when they're ready to talk, they'll say, excuse me, blah, blah, blah. You say, don't worry about it. And then you've had time to read their office and time to pick up some cues you may need in regards to what might be going on, such as in the thing I told you about the two pictures on the wall. Mm-hmm. So the cues are there. So you pick it up and then you just start talking about it. You show an interest in the client. They know why you came. You came to sell them a building or whatever it is you came for any salesman. So what you do is let them talk and they'll tell you about they have pride in their holding. To hold real estate is a different type of level of involvement with the economy and with the world. So I would say let them tell you about what they have. They'll tell you. You send out pings here and there. Or do you have anything else? Okay. You don't want to rush that. But yeah, of course, if they don't get around to it with the time constraints, then you send out the pings become a catalyst for what you want, but you got to let them talk first. They'll tell you like, okay, the other day, let me tell you this. This is like recent history. I go downtown LA in the garment district. Somebody said, Hey, I got some guys rounded up. They got whatever. One guy got whatever, 1 million to leverage. The other guy got 5 million. Okay, whatever. A couple of guys with some money. So I go down here and see these guys. I did exactly what I told you. I sat there, settled in, let them do what they were doing. And then we got to talking. And then that was on the first stop. Now I had to make more than one stop, so I'm going to speed this story up. On the second stop, I sit there, and they say, hey, Michael, do you know the building over off of Beverly Glen and wherever it is? I said, sure, I know that area. I know exactly what you're talking about. What about it? Because now, first of all, I didn't go there to even sell them. This is residential. I primarily sell industrial commercial, like Walgreens or Rite Aid, not so much Rite Aid now, but CVSs, that type of thing. And then hardcore, just, hey, you went put your boxes in there, slam the door, and here's enough parking type of things. I don't want to minimize industrial because industrial actually is very, very foundational as to what business consists of. Customers see the front end, say in the retail section, but hey, what about where it's made? What about where it's stored? That is underpinning of real estate. But having said all that, which I did, I would just say the guy took the time to give me his order. He knew what he wanted. Okay, that building, go get that building for me. All right, okay. So <laughs> I'm, I'm in the process of getting the building. But it's only because I settled in and took my time 
and let them become comfortable. And there's another aspect. I don't know. You like Woody Allen movies? They're kind of long and however they are, but uh, there's one in particular that I find to be pretty good, which is called Zealot. See, when you're selling, you've got to listen. America is a tapestry of persons, and we've been fortunate enough that the people will come here and want to build because that's what we need. We need to build. So in the building, the people go straight to business, but they apologize for however their English is and that. As a salesman, let them be who they are, and you become accustomed to them. And when you become accustomed to them, then you'll learn their patterns of speaking. You'll be able to use some of their quips effectively because you took the time to develop the commonality with them where they feel like they're just talking to their bud only with fiduciary responsibility. So you mentioned earlier, that's with a warm lead. Let's talk about cold calling. You said you were doing cold calling when you were working downtown LA and industrial. Who exactly were you calling and what was your approach for an effective call? Well, I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to take it out of script. Well, it won't be a script because I don't have a script. Okay. <laughs> like this. I don't have a script. What I do is I know the purpose of what I'm going down there for. And sometimes it really isn't any purpose. It's, I call it make a stop. Just making a stop. Hi, how you doing, Schmo? Good morning, Michael Folk here. Hey, okay, in industrial, you find out a lot about businesses. So let's just take the garment business, for instance. You got cutters, graders, contractors, the retailers, the factorers, and all other sorts, the street slockers. Everybody's there involved. And that's what brings a vibrancy to the garment district. So when you walk in, you can talk about just different aspects of what it may take to make a garment. So you already have all the, the backstory and now it's just a matter of you look around and look for opportunities yeah you got a lot of boxes there uh-huh it's pretty tight in here as the fire inspector not here that's a joke but hey you start <laughs> telling them of needs that they don't have see you do it backwards you don't wait for an order you start showing them because mm-hmm. we're supposed to be professionals in this business well then we have a right to discuss and converse about our business with the requisite people that may be able to use our services. But I look at it like lost leaders, cold calling. So you don't always have a reason, but you're saying what's going on. I want to see what's going on. I guess that'd be the reason. And anyone else that's in this business should want to see what's going on so they know what's going on so they can guide their client to a conclusion that helps their family grow. I guess that's it. So when you were talking about cold calling, it was actually cold meetings, you'd actually go up in person to the real estate properties, industrial properties. Yes, that's cold calling to me when you present yourself. But I wrote a couple of articles on it, utilizing the phone. One is basically, well, the last one was called See Through the Phone. I don't know if you've got a computer in front of you. You could pull it up. It it was in Forbes about, I don't know, a week ago. Yeah, maybe less. Yeah, about a week ago. And I had another article come out, not an article, group article come out this morning. But that wasn't on cold call. That was on something else. But yeah, basically in America and probably the whole world, we all have phones. We don't use them. The only people who use a phone are the crank callers with the machines. So, but we need to rediscover the usage of the phone and have a purpose in it. And doing so, you'd be able to get a lot of things done. Like, for instance, yesterday I had a problem in a loan closing. I was a chink. About seven people are on the deal. I'm like, okay, so what's going on? We don't know this and that. Everybody had a story. And at the end of the day, 
in the hard money business, you have a lot of people that are participating in something that affects fee interest, the underlying ownership of the land, but they really don't sell real estate. I do. It gives me an advantage because I can see what they can. I can see that there's a problem in title plant and somebody needs to call over to the plant and to hasten them to action. Call over, boom, get to the plant. Oh, the plant had some issue. I won't say what it is, but it was hacked. That was the issue and they got backlogged. So my new ally on the phone decided that I shouldn't be affected by this. So they went in and hastened up the file. I hope I'm still waiting to see. I'll email you back to let you know the end of that story. But what I'm saying, I got someone to bond with me and go forward and create an action. So when you cold call, you've got to move the ball, so to speak. Got it. Ball, well, I'll just say this. I have just a shameless plug, but not for me, for my son. My son won an Ivy League football champion at Princeton, and it was his first year there. Five months after he was there, he was already had a championship, so I'm happy for that. Anyway, anything else you'd like to me to add? Or I'm here for you guys. Yeah, let's talk about your time at the family office. What did you? Oh yeah, what did I do? Okay, well, basically all I did was go around in meetings with my mentors and sit there and listen. Now, the thing about these meetings, quite a few of them went on several hours and were all in farce, okay, which I don't speak, but I absorbed the feeling for sure. And it was probably the best thing that ever could have happened to me because they were very well steeped in business. They had properties from downtown LA to Hollywood to Beverly Hills. I initially started out doing buying flats in Beverly Hills. And there was a time where people buy one humble home and turn it in, build a mansion on the whole lot with no backyard, basically. And they kind of curtailed that after a while. Nobody wanted a big house right next to their small house. It looked kind of rude, or that was the feeling or whatever. The city curtailed it, but I started doing that. But then that didn't have enough oomph to it because you had the residential, it takes a certain personality, and I minded more for business. And that is a little bit like fashion. So I was one brother, and he was an industrial, so I investigated that. But I got opportunity to see each one of their aspects of business because it was like, okay, today. It was like being babysitting. It says, okay, you go with him today, you go with him today. And then sometimes everybody who ever had an interest in whatever I ferried it out would ride around. We'd look at it, evaluate it. And then I guess we'd make our offer to, however, achieve the goal of having it or at least knowing what's going on. And then after that, we traveled and we did a lot. It was probably the best thing that could have ever happened to me. And this is after I was operations officer in a bank because I knew him from the bank. So they said, hey, come with us and we'll show you the way to wealth, so to speak. Got it. Let's take a step back. And I want to ask you a question I ask all of my guests. What is your best real estate investing advice ever? Okay, I'm going to answer that. And I want to give that some type of answer to that. But before I answer, I want to say this. Each person's situation is different. But if we needed some type of barometer or divining rod, I would suggest keep your powder dry, but still pull the trigger, but with proper counseling and due diligence. I know that doesn't flow so well, but I have to say it all because there's a lot of things that people can get hot about a property. For instance, I had a guy call me who will go nameless. He tells me he wants to put 
60% down on a vacation property in the area might be whatever it is. I told him, I don't want to know, and I don't want to hear any more about it. And don't call me constantly asking me about the deal I just said no to, because if I say no, I have no conviction about that deal. So I can't talk to you about it because there's no reason to talk about something that I said no about. So each person's situation is different, but I do say save your capital, have it prepared, look for opportunity, and then execute on it effectively with a proper due diligence. And you got to start somewhere. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Okay, I guess. Hey, <laughs> I used to watch Jim Cramer. I think I'm trained for it. I think okay. you are too. Yep. First, though, a quick word from our best ever partners. If you own a rental property, TransUnion Smart Move can help you identify the right renter from the start so you can avoid the problems of non-payment or evictions. Don't put yourself at risk. Go to tenantscreening.com, create a free account, enter the code FAIRLESS at checkout for 25% off your next screening. With TransUnion Smart Move, you'll get great reports, great convenience, great tenants. Are you interested in getting started in real estate syndication but don't know how? My friend Whitney Sewell is the host of the Daily Real Estate Syndication Show podcast. He interviews top experts in the industry to help you learn the cutting edge tools and strategies of the syndication business. You can find Whitney and his podcast at lifebridgecapital.com. Okay, what's the best ever book you've recently read? The best book I would say, hmm, I read a lot of books. I would say The Ascent of Money. In other words, the rising of money, the ascent of money. It's a financial history of the world all the way back before the uh, tulip bulbs and everything else. I think it was just back to trading rocks. But now Ferguson wrote the book, an English author. He's well thought of. And it's written in a fashion which is a little bit Englishy, but the point is well taken. And the dry wit also helps. And I think you'll learn everything that there is to know about value. If you read that book, No Offense to the Wealth of Nations. And then I would also throw in for the audience, I think everybody needs to smash the ring of the prince and even Machiavelli. And then I will put out a shout out to my good friend, General Wesley Clark's book, Don't Fight the Last War. And that's about what I have for the books. Best ever deal you've done. See, now I had an inkling this question was going to come up. And I'm going to say... They're all the best deal I've ever done. And the reason is because each client is different and each client has a different need. Some may have similar needs, but the focus, it's not even the money from the deal. But yes, yeah, the money, but it's not just that because you don't get any money until you meet the client's needs. So you got to divine the client. So I say, I think it's the impediments to the transaction and the obstacles that make the deal fun at the end after you execute and have your commission. But even if not, they're all good. So I can't really answer that question because I appreciate and respect each transaction. I believe that each client's business is important. The rich guy's money is just as good as a small guy's money because you don't know when the small guy's going to be the big guy and the big guy's going to be the small guy. So you just want to be in the loop recycling dollars and building wealth. What's a mistake you've made on a transaction? Well, I'll tell you the truth. Here's one that comes to mind. I was new. And then what happened was, this back when I was a runner at this company called the Donati Group. And there was a gentleman I was running for, Ed Eisenberg. And he's still alive. Hey, Ed, if you listen to this, I mentioned you. You're famous now. So in any event, I was off my runnership and I had a deal. 
and uh, Ed was in the hospital for something. And anyway, I was on my own. I was on my own anyway, but I had the good fortune of having this deal over in the area of L.A. called the Goodyear Track. And I sold this 55,000 square foot building. I think I sold a million four ninety eight. And I think the client's name was Gearman. He was 97. Mr. Gearman was still trying to sell one hammer. And they're like, man, you about to get a million and a half dollars. You trying to sell one hammer? Okay, no, I don't want to buy that. So anyway, what happened was I got the contract, everything going on. I'm on my own. I'm high flying. I'm a big superstar. Boy, look at me. I'm about to sell this building. I just got to remember this is about 89, 90, something like that. So, I forgot one thing when I went to escrow. <laughs> I didn't even know how to open the escrow, to be true. <laughs> I, just, I just went down there with the papers, and I had them there. We've got an escrow officer. I'm here to open escrow. Okay, what you got? Okay, what you got? Okay, blah, 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 blah. So, she did all her typing, and I said, yeah, make sure you put in there. It's going to be a 1031 exchange. Uh-oh. And she said, well, who's your accommodator? I said, I thought you were the accommodator. And she said, no, you need an accommodator. It wasn't a mistake. Corrective action was made immediately, but I didn't know. So I don't even know if that counts as a mistake. It could have been problematic, though. So what ended up happening was that we had an accommodator. I was at Commerce Escrow. Shouts out. Everybody in L.A. knows Commerce Escrow. But they took care of it. They had an accommodator on the other side of the hall. and No harm, no foul. But it could have been. But that's just because I was new. And after that, well, I worked for a gentleman, Mr. Daniel P. Donati. And Dan Donati was very, 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 very stern on what we constructed in our addendum and anything else. He's like, listen, first thing that's going to happen is they're going to ask you where you got your law degree and do not craft language, direct them to their lawyer. It makes sense because to this day, you got to watch what you write. A lot of people get fancy with it. Okay, get fancy with it. I suggest you don't direct them to the attorney. Attorneys can be your best friend if you utilize them correctly, like at the beginning. So it's got to have the right attorney, too. <laughs> How can the best ever listeners get in touch with you or learn more about your company? They can go to www.polkproperties.net. That would be P-O-L-K-P-R-O-P-E-R-T-I-E-S.net. Properties.net. Or they can call me at 213-785-7284. Michael, thanks so much for being on the show and sharing your experience in real estate as a broker and really being focused on serving clients and identifying new concepts to make them money. And you talked through some specific examples. Really appreciate the conversation. Hope you have a best ever day and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you, sir. Are you interested in getting started in real estate syndication but don't know how? My friend Whitney Sewell is the host of the Daily Real Estate Syndication Show podcast. He interviews top experts in the industry to help you learn the cutting edge tools and strategies of the syndication business. You can find Whitney and his podcast at lifebridgecapital.com. June 6, 2018, 9 o'clock a.m. Technology's impact on the future of commercial real estate. The retail industry has been experiencing disruption due to technological innovations that have pushed a growing number of consumers to mobile purchases and e-commerce transactions. In 2017, nationwide e-retail sales totaled over $409 billion. Amazon accounted for $54.47 billion, and Walmart sold $14 billion in the U.S. alone. By the year 2021, 
Forecasts for global e-retail sales expect the number to reach 603.4 billion U.S. dollars. In tandem, local and national media headlines in the last few years have reported stories of major retail industry giants closing hundreds of brick-and-mortar locations due to steady declines in sales. Among the most notable retailers closing doors or filing for bankruptcy protection are Radio Shack, Gap Inc., Kmart, and Toys R Us. Across the Commercial Property Board, access to information that was once limited to CRE brokers who paid fees for such data is now available to the general public for free. This has removed barriers between commercial real estate owners and prospective tenants. For example, the website 42 Floors provides office space rentals and commercial real estate listings for owners and prospective tenants. A fair amount of information is available for free, and a premium service lets licensed brokers access better qualified prospective tenants. Some companies like CompStack and DealX implement a crowdsource platform by providing lease comparables for public usage, coupled with details like the tenant's name, rent amount, length of lease, and landlord concessions. Real Massive and VTS have even more comprehensive platforms, offering property listings, relevant market data, workflows and information to owners, CRE professionals, and tenants. These are just a few of the startups looking to transform commercial real estate through innovation and by making data transparent and ubiquitous. It's clear that technological innovation has affected many asset classes of real estate, including workspaces, retail shopping centers, distribution centers, offices, and more. With an increasing amount of work and consumer purchases being performed from anywhere on mobile devices that have internet access, employees and consumers are transforming the way they do their jobs, purchase goods and services, and live. Retail stores are reorganizing their traditional infrastructure from a decade ago to better compete with e-commerce giants such as Amazon and Walmart. Because of the amount of information consumers are able to access, change is taking place in the retail industry. Retail store owners, commercial brokers, and staff are no longer the ones with absolute power. Consumers are not taking a backseat anymore, and the ramifications for the commercial real estate industry cannot be taken lightly. The road to a purchase is no longer a straight line for consumers. Nowadays, they include both traditional store and online channels. Consumers are investigating and learning all there is to know about the product well before going into a physical location, if they ever do. One of the outcomes is that square footage demand for retail space has decreased due to shifts in consumer behavior and buying patterns, efficiencies of the physical store and online channels. In many major cities across the U.S., foot traffic has been on a gradual decline. Disruption in the retail market is having a similar influence in manufacturing. Warehousing and distribution markets have experienced an increasing demand due to the yearly growth in online purchases. It should come as no surprise that many large retailers are making investments in extremely complex technical fulfillment sites that are strategically located. Customers can now receive merchandise that is directly shipped from the warehouse inventory instead of retail stores having to keep it within the store. This works out well for retailers, since the cost per square foot of warehousing space tends to be a lot less expensive than retail space. In the office class, the integration of technology, mobile devices, and infrastructure empowers workers to work virtually anywhere. Traditional office environments have been places where employees go to perform their jobs Monday through Friday on a 9-to-5 work schedule. 
people communicated with colleagues and fellow staff and even met with customers. In essence, the original social network was the office. This system was linear, strict, and offered few to no opportunities for personalization and uniqueness. Overall, disruption is a positive thing that brings about progressive change for the disrupted industry. Commercial real estate agents and investors who are open to new methods and who evolve with the latest disruptive technologies should remain market leaders. Innovation will often produce very good results if you're willing to embrace it. If not, you are likely to be left behind. May 15, 2018, 9 o'clock a.m. Why you should consider triple net investment properties for your portfolio. Imagine what it would look like to have a multi-billion dollar company send you a check every month for the next 25 years. Is the idea of having companies like Walgreens, McDonald's, or Bank of America sending you monthly rent checks enticing? It should be. The peace of mind this could give you is likely far superior to that offered by a local or regional commercial business tenant. With a publicly traded tenant, you could look at its stock ticker to track what condition it's in. After selling a hands-on property like a multifamily residence, many investors look to take advantage of the 1031 exchange and seek a replacement property. A variety of net lease investment options come into play here. Per the CCIM Institute, they include Bond Lease the tenant is fully responsible for operating expenses, maintenance, repairs, and replacements for the entire building and site without limitation. NNN lease. These leases follow the bond lease definition, except that capital expenditures are limited, usually in the final months of the lease. The lessee is liable for all of the property's expenses, both fixed and operating. NN lease. This lease follows the NNN, except the landlord is responsible for structural components, such as the roof, bearing walls, and foundation. Modified net, or modified gross lease. The tenant pays its own utilities, interior maintenance and repairs, and insurance. The landlord pays everything else, including real estate property taxes. Net leased properties with credible tenants have long been favorites of insurance companies, real estate investment trusts, REITs, and high net worth investors. They acquire them because they have long-term leases with little or no management dependability. The occupants are public companies that are often worth billions and have brilliant credit ratings. You are probably beginning to see the benefits of holding properties like these. When you start looking closer, the deal gets even sweeter. It's simple, quiet, and calm. You can sleep at night without being concerned about cash flow. With no day-to-day -day management, a multi-billion dollar company is an occupant that tends to all its own maintenance, property taxes, and insurance. The property is an imperative part of business operations, and leaseholders are very concerned about exteriors. They want a prime location among demographics that predict high traffic and sales. These tenants pay their rent like clockwork every month, and the steady cash flow permits you, the owner, to build equity constantly over the lease term. The worth of the main real estate and the excellent credit of the tenant should enable you to get very positive financing terms. Predictably leveraged, with a self-amortizing loan, the assets will be paid off at the end of the original lease term. If the tenant leaves, you still have a valuable property that could be debt-free.
When you own these properties, it is important to monitor your lease agings. If you do need to sell, the longer term you have left, the better. If the occupants stay beyond the preliminary term after the asset is paid off, which many do, your investment profits may be increased significantly. If you don't want the trouble of management and continual ongoing expenses presenting themselves, read on. It is essential to invest in a location that is likely to spawn extensive sales for a commercial tenant. If the leaseholder is able to make a huge amount of money in a great location, it is doubtful they will leave following the initial lease term. When buying a net leased property, you should cautiously consider the location you want to procure. It is helpful to use demographic studies and mapping software to compare and contrast the attributes of various businesses to decide on the best one to venture into. Fantastic locations with the best occupants are always in demand and will sell at a premium. It is generally worth it to pay extra to get a premium location. This will enable you to sell the property faster if you decide to sell prior to the end of the lease. Net leased properties with credit tenants have increased in popularity with investors because many investors are receiving very little returns on convertible or liquid assets. Net leased properties with credit tenants can be a harmless, reliable investment if you choose them wisely. If you are interested in a triple net investment property, contact a firm that is versed in the sales and acquisition of such properties. If you have an appetite for more risk, look into value-added properties. While there is little risk in triple net properties, the main thing to consider is the tenant's strength. Publicly traded companies offer transparency as to condition through readily available resources. Inflation should also be considered, since most long-term leases have flat rental rates until the exercise of the option period. I invite you to begin your search for triple net properties. Call a few brokers and see what they have in their inventories. Once you've digested the information, Take a plunge toward a peaceful and long-term investment. November 1st, 2019, 8 o'clock a.m. To protect your real estate, remember that it's a bundle of sticks. Written by Michael Polk of Polk Properties. What is real estate, really? Most people might say it's the land and or structures appurtenant to it. I agree with that. I should. I came up with it. But I think owners should also consider what is referred to as the bundle of rights theory. This is where all the rubber hits the road. People work hard on acquiring properties, improving them, flipping them, leasing them out, etc. The type of property doesn't matter. The bundle of rights is your real estate. Anyone who owns a fee, or has a long or short-term lease, has a bundle of rights that can be conveyed. I want to discuss the concept of fee ownership that anyone owning real estate, from land to skyscrapers, has. Let's think about the Egyptian pyramids. What the pharaohs had was really just a supersized bundle of rights. The pharaohs could build on and utilize the land they owned in any fashion they wished. No restraint on their bundle of rights. In modern times, there are restraints on ownership that in most cases are known in advance and made easily available to the public. There are also cases where the rights of an owner may change due to nothing that the owner could lay a magnifying glass to, such as rent control. For the most part, you can find out information on any restraint to ownership prior to purchase. At times, there will be a groundswell against your bundle of sticks. At others, it's an outright attempt at a taking. Ancient Egyptians didn't have to worry about such matters, but if you're a real estate owner today, you should. 
An easy way to look at this theory is to imagine a bundle of sticks and string. This bundle has a finite total number of sticks. This bundle represents your total fee simple ownership, the most complete form of property ownership there is, of the sticks. The string holding them together is your deed. Of the utmost importance is that you try to stay on top of matters as they relate to your sticks. A new bond measure? Check your sticks. Voter indebtedness? Better check on how that affects your sticks. Property owners must be aware and advocate for their ownership positions. What happens behind closed doors can affect your rights and property value. Be mindful. The point is, those sticks represent almost the entirety of your ownership rights. So, what should you do with a bunch of sticks and string? Nothing at all if that's what you want. Many would agree that doing nothing is a right. However, some cities are now introducing taxes to fee owners who choose not to rent or otherwise convey their property with a vacancy tax. What you should do is look at why you bought the property. Did it meet your expectations? If so, congratulations. If not, let's look at your bundle. All of your sticks are there, and the string too. I ask, why do you still have all of your sticks? We have to talk about conveyances. In simple terms, a conveyance is giving to another a right to use something you possess exclusively. If you purchased your property to produce a gain solely based on the ownership, then you need to get that going. So if you own your home and rent it out, you have made a conveyance. You still own the property, but you have conveyed your exclusive use for something of value to you. If you look at any interaction where you use real estate, for instance, a parking lot, the owner can put up a chain and leave it vacant forever as long as the owner pays the taxes and a few other things. Whether or not that would be a smart choice depends on the person. For most, it would not be. So, as an owner, you convey. Charging for parking at $25 per hour is a type of conveyance. Each of your sticks represents a divisible share of your fee ownership. The sticks are the real estate. Convey some of them. Build a building if it's within your rights. Check the zoning and planning as it relates to do so. Do you have the money to erect a building, build a house, or paint lines on the ground? Convey some of those rights and get some cash. That's your right also. When you exchange the usage of your property for a value for a defined period, you have made a conveyance. When you lease your property, you give the tenant the right to use a portion of your sticks for a, hopefully defined, period of time in exchange for value. How many sticks you convey is up to you and what the market will accept. Any time you don't have the absolute right of possession is a type of conveyance. So if you look at the real estate this way, you will have to look at the implications of your actions on your bundle of rights. The key thing is you must not only care for the upkeep and income stability of the property, but also the intangibles as they affect your ownership. It's not a bad thing at all. It's just a thing that you must do to protect the total value. Remember, a few sticks can start a fire. Don't get burned by your own sticks. And don't let lackadaisical thinking take your bundle of rights in a direction you never intended. November 21st, 2019, 8 o'clock a.m. For answers to the housing shortage, look to the sky. Written by Michael Polk of Polk Properties. Here in the U.S., we have a dire need for housing for a very varied population. We have a homeless problem, a housing affordability problem, livability concerns, and desirability issues. To solve them, I propose that we look to the sky. Look up at the clear skies above you now. That's your building area. 
sophisticated property owners have long coveted what are called air rights, which grant permission to create new density by building upward. It's more easing of the current planning to meet housing or other needs, an overlay of what already exists, so to speak. Now, some would say, why not build somewhere else? There is a lot of unused land. I can see it. That is true, but that land may not be useful for a host of reasons. People mostly need all of the same things, i.e. transportation, places to work, services, health care, entertainment. To get this in one place, you need a concentration of those services and needs. You need cities. In an analysis of densification, researchers in March 2019 wrote, Due to significant population and economic growth, urbanization has occurred around the world at unprecedented rates in recent decades. In response to these trends, UN Habitat has identified planned city infill, redevelopment, and densification as three critical areas to focus its global urban development agenda. According to the research of UN Habitat, most cities in the world have forfeited agglomeration benefits and instead have generated sprawl, congestion, and fragmentation over the last two decades. The unstructured nature of urbanization presents great difficulties for developing prudent land use policies by city planning offices. What does this have to do with real estate in my city? Government planners, like many other professions, have organizations that they or their departments belong to where they discuss the trade. A great deal of planning for your city is based on UN designs. The designs are based on a view that what may generally work can be applied globally. But if all real estate is local and planning affects local matters, what gives? While these plans filter down to your local level, the forums where they are discussed are usually within regional planning agencies that cities, counties, and states belong to. If the density is going to be applied on any significant level locally, we need to bring in the requisite stakeholders. Anyone who owns property within an area where major dense development is planned should also be able to apply this land rush for their gain, pursuant to their air rights. Let's say I own a building across the street from a development that has all the touchstones of modern planning. There's also a run-of-the-mill residential property down the street owned by someone else. Perhaps that owner could create more rental space if only they had been factored in during the planning process. Let's look at our real local planning needs and start with the basics. If you as a property owner want to investigate whether your property could see a density increase, go to your local building and safety or planning department and ask to see the general plan they have for the next 10, 20, or 30 years. This will give you a lay of the land for the future. Ask about the potential to apply density to your particular parcels. As the cities are crying out for more housing, Air Rights provides an opportunity to give it to them. This is where possibility lies, and perhaps it will begin to make a dent in this most urgent concern of affordable housing. October 16th, 2019, 1.15 p.m. How to build a brokerage. 13 key factors to consider when choosing a partner. Building a brokerage is no easy feat, and for some, finding a partner to take the journey with may be the best course of action. However, though from the outset someone may seem like a perfect fit for the enterprise, it's possible a lack of proper due diligence could leave you with a partner who doesn't exactly share your same vision for the future or agree on what steps you should take to get there. Avoiding these situations requires a solid understanding of how to spot suitable partners, as well as unsuitable ones. 
If someone doesn't fit the proper criteria, it's a safe bet that they just aren't suited to being your brokerage partner. Experience is the best judge in these cases, which is why 13 experts from Forbes Real Estate Council discussed some of the key factors to look for when choosing a partner who will help you and your brokerage go the distance. The following excerpt is an answer given by Michael Polk of Polk Properties. For additional responses from members of the Forbes Real Estate Council, check out the full article on Forbes.com. Who does what? Business is good, and lead generation is trending upward. You need help. Okay, get a partner. Who do you get? When do you consult? And who is charged to act in regards to administration, sales, etc.? You can like a person and even make a lot of money with them. The question is, can you trust your future to this person and vice versa? A heartfelt discussion is mandatory. Review personal and business positions. September 4th, 2018, 8.30 a.m. A simple exercise to enhance your cold calling skills and grow your lead list. Let's imagine you're preparing to make some cold calls in search of new clients looking to buy or sell homes. There you are at your desk, perch, hangout, or office comfy chair. You have your coffee, product or service information, vetted list of leads, and headset. Here goes nothing. Stop. Don't pick up that phone. Before dialing a single number, ask yourself why you are calling this person. You want to set an appointment. Why? This time, Try something different. Stand up and walk outside your office and onto the sidewalk. What do you see? People. Walk up to one of them and start a conversation. What did you learn about that person from this impromptu, casual conversation? Cold Calling 101 As a real estate agent, you are always cold calling. In every social or business encounter, you are aggregating information. The purposes of these interactions may vary but getting the information is basically the same. As a first step, you need to become comfortable talking with people in person, on the fly. This takes practice. That is why we started off with the stranger on the street. If you can feel comfortable in this scenario, the phone calls will be a breeze, just like closing your eyes and talking to a friend. Prior to the stranger approach, you should scan for pieces of information that are readily evident about the person you plan to approach. Insignias, team logos, prints on clothing, food or drink they're holding. The list is endless. When you open your mouth to say hello, prepare to bring up something you've observed about the person you're approaching. Armed with more information, you have more to banter about. Look for synergies, exchange data, and then be on your way. On the phone, you can use this same tactic, but since you don't see your prospect, you'll have to look for conversation starting clues in other ways. The successful cold call is made by getting out of your own way. Begin a conversation with someone and listen to them. Don't be too rigid. Ask prudent questions that are not on the prescribed talking points list. This will be based on the general flow of the conversation. Make mental or physical notes of the information you gain just by being open to discussion with someone you're just getting to know. You know your business. You know the market. Now get to know your prospect. Small steps can get you far. Just one piece of personal information disclosed through conversation can be quite useful if you listen with intent and act with purpose. A professional prospect knows what you want from them, so you really don't have to tell them much about that as you begin. You do have to listen. 
and then leave with something that will get you towards your end goal. Excelling at cold calling is an asset to your real estate business and requires talking to anyone about anything at a moment's notice. Being comfortable with that takes practice. The good news is you have plenty of opportunities to practice every time you walk outside. Find someone in need of something and offer up your interest in how you can help them. Remember to look left, right, around. The more you engage with others, the easier it gets. October 22nd, 2018, 8.30 a.m. Property taxes and local government are the keys to the L.A. real estate market. Have you ever opened your property tax bill and, after looking over it, wondered how they come up with that amount? Or who they are? Maybe you called the tax collector's office and complained that your taxes are too high. You are likely directed to the tax assessor next. California's unique property tax system treats all property, whether commercial, residential income, or family home, exactly the same, and is a system that any would-be investors or potential buyers would do well to familiarize themselves with. Record high prices, wildfires, and even the ever-present threat of earthquakes seem unable to deter people from pursuing the Los Angeles dream and the opportunity offered by the largest metropolitan area in the world's fifth largest economy. The population of Los Angeles County alone exceeds 10 million, more than the populations of the vast majority of U.S. states. Home prices and rents continue to rise, though sales slowed this summer, which is to be expected in response not only to rising prices, but increasing mortgage rates. According to the Office of the L.A. County Assessor, property values grew by an average 6.62% countywide and by 7.2% in the city of Los Angeles. That's only the assessed value which, because of the property tax base year stabilization of California's Proposition 13, is often lower than the current market rate if that property were to sell today. Prop 13 codified an event-based assessment system in the state constitution. It stipulates the property will be taxed at 1% of the assessed value and that this assessed value shall not increase by more than 2% yearly to account for inflation. This means, for example, that when you buy a house, the market value of the property is appraised by the assessor's office, and that value, plus a maximum of 2% annually, will be used to calculate the 1% property tax each year. If the significance of this isn't yet clear, this means that the tax rate is stable and absolutely predictable, not just this year or the next, but a decade from now. Critically, it also means the assessed property value is locked in at the time of purchase and effectively becomes the sole variable in determining the amount of taxes owed. This significantly increases the benefit of getting in early in areas experiencing renewal and new development, since the lower purchase price will also likely mean lower property tax for a long time to come. The caveat to that is reassessable events. These mean that a property can be reassessed to the current market rate in certain circumstances. These circumstances include the sale or transfer of property. When you sell a property, its new tax base year may be of little concern to you, 
but transfers can be triggered by adding people to a deed, moving property in and out of trust, etc. These actions can be taken without reassessment in some cases, but they require precise maneuvers. Construction also triggers reassessment, but, importantly, it can be only a partial reassessment for additions. This system puts singular importance on the role of the assessor's office. The value determined by the assessor's office creates a strong incentive to appeal that decision in order to try and attain a lower value. The appeals go before an independent board, but with such incentive to appeal investments, it quickly becomes overloaded, particularly in large jurisdictions. The Los Angeles County Assessor identified 2.57 million taxable properties in the county as of January 1, 2018, collectively valued at $1.51 trillion. With this number and value of properties, it's easy to see how assessment appeals get backed up. In 2014, there was a backlog of approximately 23,000 appeals waiting to be heard, with additional new appeals being filed each year. The current Los Angeles County Assessor has prioritized assessment appeals, working with the Board of Supervisors to reduce the backlog and looking for innovative strategies to reduce the need and incentive to file unnecessary appeals. The effort has been met with some initial success, but more work certainly remains to be done. Because the assessed value is the single determining variable of property tax and can increase only modestly over time, property tax relief and benefits are effectively provided as exclusions from reassessment. Such a benefit exists for seniors 55 or older to be able to buy a home of equal or lesser value within LA County or other participating counties and take their existing property tax base year with them. Another exclusion allows parents, and in some cases, grandparents, to pass their property tax value to their children and grandchildren. There are also benefits for those with disabilities and for victims of natural disasters. These savings and relief programs are administered by the assessor's office, which, through modernization and an emphasis on public service and coordination with other agencies, has greatly improved the experience of interacting with the property tax system and the ability of those eligible to take advantage of the tax savings allowed by Prop 13. Technology is fundamentally changing the way we conduct business. Local government is notoriously behind, but at the LA County Assessor's Office, modernization, while slow and steady, is leading the pack in usable customer service and has made available valuable real estate data, including property values, recent sales, and new construction. Los Angeles County has seen consistent growth, the continued demand for property for both sale and rent, not only in the city of Los Angeles, but in the county's growing suburbs, and the stability of property taxes make it an attractive investment destination for real estate professionals and home buyers alike. August 14th, 2019, 8.15 a.m. How a public-private partnership can mitigate three factors encroaching on cities today. Written by Michael Polk of Polk Properties. In urban cores and cities across the U.S., planning departments have been attempting to address the housing crisis. Increased density is one tool they have been using. 
Some of this planning is conducted on a regional basis through collective action by cities and counties, and where there are transportation and infrastructure projects are usually the hubs for new housing starts. This is on top of developers attempting to take advantage of the very same density gains in order to profit. After all, there are only so many sweet spots to build on. On the one hand, cities need affordable housing. On the other, developers naturally want to build for profit. So what do we do to meet both sets of goals? I live in Los Angeles, and I believe I have seen everything that can impact a dwelling, from fires to earthquakes to riots. What I am now witnessing in Los Angeles is shocking, or it should be, to any real estate veteran. You cannot move around. I know everyone in real estate loves to see the cranes that signal progress, but is there a breaking point? As I see it, there are three key issues converging all at once that are making a mess of urban cores. Construction. First, think about the traffic construction sites bring. If you have had the good fortune to see the workers in the street with directional flags, you get the idea. There they are, waving the caution flag or the stop sign. Traffic now stops cold and people start looking for an escape route. Where there is density, there is a need to move building materials to the upper floors. This happens from ground level, thus the person with the flag. In Los Angeles, the slightest hiccup in traffic reverberates throughout the arterial traffic corridors. To make this less of an imposition on the public, the construction schedule should be considered to ease the process for everybody. Cities may be able to help by providing existing up-to-date traffic data so development movements can be scheduled with the public and projects in mind. If you want smart cities, I say start here. Ride-sharing. Then, there is the fact that people find ride-sharing services so convenient. Why drive ourselves? We can infer from the success of ride-hailing companies that the model is here to stay. The ride-sharing companies will say they are helping to alleviate congestion, but recent research doesn't agree. Convenience has a price. In this case, the price is increased traffic. The concept of traffic may be nothing new in Los Angeles, but what I'm seeing lately is different. When people earn their living by driving around all day, we see an endless circulation of cars that never park. Gentrification Gentrification also plays a part in the traffic equation. People are tired of long commutes from the suburbs and are rediscovering the origin points of great cities. The old and new join together for a reimagined future. Real estate developers should consider investigating what surplus land cities may be able to allocate to the goal of ending some of their housing crunches. Developers might also have to try to partner with existing owners, who have enormous equity positions in their properties, but lack the expertise to extract the gains that lay present. This could also mute a great deal of constituent angst about displacement. A Total Solution I don't believe that the planning functions took the effects of ride-hailing companies, gentrification, and enormous construction projects all happening at once into consideration. If they did, how could this have happened? I believe we need to have a true public-private partnership, wherein the government entities contribute non-performing government-owned land into a pool. From here, developers can choose locations and apply to build on that public land. This land should be allocated in a reasonably dispersed way so as to still take advantage of rail and other associated public transportation. The sweet spot must be expanded to relieve and distribute the traffic burden equitably. The public return on unused land is 0%. No taxes, no income, zilch. So there is no reason not to maximize it. 
The land is a major part of developers' cost. This cost is borne up front, with the soft cost following. If the land cost is reduced to a number that facilitates a reasonable return for the developer and true streamlining of entitlements and permitting occur, we will all win. Developers can look to build where they may not have in the past. This could also foster improved neighborhood retail and other uses. Furthermore, as a true partnership, the process should move along much faster. Homelessness, affordability, and other housing issues can be addressed by this simple input. If the load on the city centers can be distributed to other areas of the cities by placing the usable government surplus land in service, this would foster development in a balanced way. Builders love to build. Local governments should utilize people's land for obvious needs. Contribute that land, and the builders will come. November 1, 2019, 8 o'clock a.m. To protect your real estate, remember that it's a bundle of sticks. Written by Michael Polk of Polk Properties. What is real estate, really? Most people might say it's the land and or structures appurtenant to it. I agree with that. I should. I came up with it. But I think owners should also consider what is referred to as the bundle of rights theory. This is where all the rubber hits the road. People work hard on acquiring properties, improving them, flipping them, leasing them out, etc. The type of property doesn't matter. The bundle of rights is your real estate. Anyone who owns a fee, or has a long or short-term lease, has a bundle of rights that can be conveyed. I want to discuss the concept of fee ownership that anyone owning real estate, from land to skyscrapers, has. Let's think about the Egyptian pyramids. What the pharaohs had was really just a supersized bundle of rights. The pharaohs could build on and utilize the land they owned in any fashion they wished. No restraint on their bundle of rights. In modern times, there are restraints on ownership that in most cases are known in advance and made easily available to the public. There are also cases where the rights of an owner may change due to nothing that the owner could lay a magnifying glass to, such as rent control. For the most part, you can find out information on any restraint to ownership prior to purchase. At times, there will be a groundswell against your bundle of sticks. At others, it's an outright attempt at a taking. Ancient Egyptians didn't have to worry about such matters, but if you're a real estate owner today, you should. An easy way to look at this theory is to imagine a bundle of sticks and string. This bundle has a finite total number of sticks. This bundle represents your total fee simple ownership, the most complete form of property ownership there is, of the sticks. The string holding them together is your deed. Of the utmost importance is that you try to stay on top of matters as they relate to your sticks. A new bond measure? Check your sticks. Voter indebtedness? Better check on how that affects your sticks. Property owners must be aware and advocate for their ownership positions. What happens behind closed doors can affect your rights and property value. Be mindful. The point is, those sticks represent almost the entirety of your ownership rights. So, what should you do with a bunch of sticks and string? Nothing at all if that's what you want. Many would agree that doing nothing is a right. However, some cities are now introducing taxes to fee owners who choose not to rent or otherwise convey their property with a vacancy tax. What you should do is look at why you bought the property. Did it meet your expectations? If so, congratulations. If not, let's look at your bundle. All of your sticks are there, and the string too. I ask, why do you still have all of your sticks? 
we have to talk about conveyances. In simple terms, a conveyance is giving to another a right to use something you possess exclusively. If you purchased your property to produce a gain solely based on the ownership, then you need to get that going. So if you own your home and rent it out, you have made a conveyance. You still own the property, but you have conveyed your exclusive use for something of value to you. If you look at any interaction where you use real estate, for instance, a parking lot, the owner can put up a chain and leave it vacant forever as long as the owner pays the taxes and a few other things. Whether or not that would be a smart choice depends on the person. For most, it would not be. So, as an owner, you convey. Charging for parking at $25 per hour is a type of conveyance. Each of your sticks represents a divisible share of your fee ownership. The sticks are the real estate. Convey some of them. Build a building if it's within your rights. Check the zoning and planning as it relates to do so. Do you have the money to erect a building, build a house, or paint lines on the ground? Convey some of those rights and get some cash. That's your right also. When you exchange the usage of your property for a value for a defined period, you have made a conveyance. When you lease your property, you give the tenant the right to use a portion of your sticks for a, hopefully defined, period of time in exchange for value. How many sticks you convey is up to you and what the market will accept. Any time you don't have the absolute right of possession is a type of conveyance. So if you look at the real estate this way, you will have to look at the implications of your actions on your bundle of rights. The key thing is you must not only care for the upkeep and income stability of the property, but also the intangibles as they affect your ownership. It's not a bad thing at all. It's just a thing that you must do to protect the total value. Remember, a few sticks can start a fire. Don't get burned by your own sticks, and don't let lackadaisical thinking take your bundle of rights in a direction you never intended. October 22nd, 2018, 8.30 a.m. Property taxes and local government are the keys to the L.A. real estate market. Have you ever opened your property tax bill and, after looking over it, wondered how they come up with that amount? Or who they are? Maybe you called the tax collector's office and complained that your taxes are too high. You are likely directed to the tax assessor next. California's unique property tax system treats all property, whether commercial, residential income, or family home, exactly the same and is a system that any would-be investors or potential buyers would do well to familiarize themselves with. Record high prices, wildfires, and even the ever-present threat of earthquakes seem unable to deter people from pursuing the Los Angeles dream and the opportunity offered by the largest metropolitan area in the world's fifth-largest economy. The population of Los Angeles County alone exceeds 10 million, more than the populations of the vast majority of U.S. states. Home prices and rents continue to rise, though sales slowed this summer, which is to be expected in response not only to rising prices, but increasing mortgage rates. According to the Office of the L.A. County Assessor, property values grew by an average 6.62% countywide and by 7.2% in the city of Los Angeles. That's only the assessed value which, because of the property tax base year stabilization of California's Proposition 13, 
is often lower than the current market rate if that property were to sell today. Prop 13 codified an event-based assessment system in the state constitution. It stipulates the property will be taxed at 1% of the assessed value and that this assessed value shall not increase by more than 2% yearly to account for inflation. This means, for example, that when you buy a house, the market value of the property is appraised by the assessor's office, and that value, plus a maximum of 2% annually, will be used to calculate the 1% property tax each year. If the significance of this isn't yet clear, this means that the tax rate is stable and absolutely predictable, not just this year or the next, but a decade from now. Critically, it also means the assessed property value is locked in at the time of purchase and effectively becomes the sole variable in determining the amount of taxes owed. This significantly increases the benefit of getting in early in areas experiencing renewal and new development, since the lower purchase price will also likely mean lower property tax for a long time to come. The caveat to that is reassessable events. These mean that a property can be reassessed to the current market rate in certain circumstances. These circumstances include the sale or transfer of property. When you sell a property, its new tax base year may be of little concern to you, but transfers can be triggered by adding people to a deed, moving property in and out of trust, etc. These actions can be taken without reassessment in some cases, but they require precise maneuvers. Construction also triggers reassessment, but, importantly, it can be only a partial reassessment for additions. This system puts singular importance on the role of the assessor's office. The value determined by the assessor's office creates a strong incentive to appeal that decision in order to try and attain a lower value. The appeals go before an independent board, but with such incentive to appeal investments, it quickly becomes overloaded particularly in large jurisdictions. The Los Angeles County Assessor identified 2.57 million taxable properties in the county as of January 1, 2018, collectively valued at $1.51 trillion. With this number and value of properties, it's easy to see how assessment appeals get backed up. In 2014, there was a backlog of approximately 23,000 appeals waiting to be heard, with additional new appeals being filed each year. The current Los Angeles County Assessor has prioritized assessment appeals, working with the Board of Supervisors to reduce the backlog and looking for innovative strategies to reduce the need and incentive to file unnecessary appeals. The effort has been met with some initial success, but more work certainly remains to be done. Because the assessed value is the single determining variable of property tax and can increase only modestly over time, property tax relief and benefits are effectively provided as exclusions from reassessment. Such a benefit exists for seniors 55 or older to be able to buy a home of equal or lesser value within L.A. County or other participating counties and take their existing property tax base year with them. Another exclusion allows parents, and in some cases, grandparents, to pass their property tax value to their children and grandchildren. There are also benefits for those with disabilities and for victims of natural disasters. These savings and relief programs are administered by the assessor's office, which, through modernization, 
and an emphasis on public service and coordination with other agencies has greatly improved the experience of interacting with the property tax system and the ability of those eligible to take advantage of the tax savings allowed by Prop 13. Technology is fundamentally changing the way we conduct business. Local government is notoriously behind. But at the L.A. County Assessor's Office, modernization, while slow and steady, is leading the pack in usable customer service and has made available valuable real estate data, including property values, recent sales, and new construction. Los Angeles County has seen consistent growth, the continued demand for property for both sale and rent, not only in the city of Los Angeles, but in the county's growing suburbs, and the stability of property taxes make it an attractive investment destination for real estate professionals and home buyers alike. June 6, 2018, 9 o'clock a.m. Technology's impact on the future of commercial real estate. The retail industry has been experiencing disruption due to technological innovations that have pushed a growing number of consumers to mobile purchases and e-commerce transactions. In 2017, nationwide e-retail sales totaled over $409 billion. Amazon accounted for $54.47 billion, and Walmart sold $14 billion in the U.S. alone. By the year 2021, Forecasts for global e-retail sales expect the number to reach 603.4 billion U.S. dollars. In tandem, local and national media headlines in the last few years have reported stories of major retail industry giants closing hundreds of brick-and-mortar locations due to steady declines in sales. Among the most notable retailers closing doors or filing for bankruptcy protection are Radio Shack, Gap Inc., Kmart, and Toys R Us. Across the Commercial Property Board, access to information that was once limited to CRE brokers who paid fees for such data is now available to the general public for free. This has removed barriers between commercial real estate owners and prospective tenants. For example, the website 42 Floors provides office space rentals and commercial real estate listings for owners and prospective tenants. A fair amount of information is available for free and a premium service lets licensed brokers access better qualified prospective tenants. Some companies like CompStack and DealX implement a crowdsource platform by providing lease comparables for public usage, coupled with details like the tenant's name, rent amount, length of lease, and landlord concessions. Real Massive and VTS have even more comprehensive platforms, offering property listings, relevant market data, workflows and information to owners, CRE professionals, and tenants. These are just a few of the startups looking to transform commercial real estate through innovation and by making data transparent and ubiquitous. It's clear that technological innovation has affected many asset classes of real estate, including workspaces, retail shopping centers, distribution centers, offices, and more. With an increasing amount of work and consumer purchases being performed from anywhere on mobile devices that have internet access, employees and consumers are transforming the way they do their jobs, purchase goods and services, and live. Retail stores are reorganizing their traditional infrastructure from a decade ago to better compete with e-commerce giants such as Amazon and Walmart.
Because of the amount of information consumers are able to access, change is taking place in the retail industry. Retail store owners, commercial brokers, and staff are no longer the ones with absolute power. Consumers are not taking a back seat anymore, and the ramifications for the commercial real estate industry cannot be taken lightly. The road to a purchase is no longer a straight line for consumers. Nowadays, they include both traditional store and online channels. Consumers are investigating and learning all there is to know about the product well before going into a physical location, if they ever do. One of the outcomes is that square footage demand for retail space has decreased due to shifts in consumer behavior and buying patterns, efficiencies of the physical store and online channels. In many major cities across the U.S., foot traffic has been on a gradual decline. Disruption in the retail market is having a similar influence in manufacturing. Warehousing and distribution markets have experienced an increasing demand due to the yearly growth in online purchases. It should come as no surprise that many large retailers are making investments in extremely complex technical fulfillment sites that are strategically located. Customers can now receive merchandise that is directly shipped from the warehouse inventory instead of retail stores having to keep it within the store. This works out well for retailers since the cost per square foot of warehousing space tends to be a lot less expensive than retail space. In the office class, the integration of technology, mobile devices, and infrastructure empowers workers to work virtually anywhere. Traditional office environments have been places where employees go to perform their jobs Monday through Friday on a 9-to-5 work schedule. People communicated with colleagues and fellow staff and even met with customers. In essence, the original social network was the office. This system was linear, strict, and offered few to no opportunities for personalization and uniqueness. Overall, Disruption is a positive thing that brings about progressive change for the disrupted industry. Commercial real estate agents and investors who are open to new methods and who evolve with the latest disruptive technologies should remain market leaders. Innovation will often produce very good results if you're willing to embrace it. If not, you are likely to be left behind. May 15, 2018, 9 o'clock a.m. Why you should consider triple net investment properties for your portfolio. Imagine what it would look like to have a multi-billion dollar company send you a check every month for the next 25 years. Is the idea of having companies like Walgreens, McDonald's, or Bank of America sending you monthly rent checks enticing? It should be. The peace of mind this could give you is likely far superior to that offered by a local or regional commercial business tenant. With a publicly traded tenant, you could look at its stock ticker to track what condition it's in. After selling a hands-on property like a multifamily residence, many investors look to take advantage of the 1031 exchange and seek a replacement property. A variety of net lease investment options come into play here. Per the CCIM Institute, they include Bond Lease the tenant is fully responsible for operating expenses, maintenance, repairs, and replacements for the entire building and site without limitation. NNN lease. 
These leases follow the bond lease definition, except that capital expenditures are limited, usually in the final months of the lease. The lessee is liable for all of the property's expenses, both fixed and operating. NN lease. This lease follows the NNN, except the landlord is responsible for structural components, such as the roof, bearing walls, and foundation. Modified net, or modified gross lease. The tenant pays its own utilities, interior maintenance and repairs, and insurance. The landlord pays everything else, including real estate property taxes. Net leased properties with credible tenants have long been favorites of insurance companies, real estate investment trusts, REITs, and high net worth investors. They acquire them because they have long-term leases with little or no management dependability. The occupants are public companies that are often worth billions and have brilliant credit ratings. You are probably beginning to see the benefits of holding properties like these. When you start looking closer, the deal gets even sweeter. It's simple, quiet, and calm. You can sleep at night without being concerned about cash flow. With no day-to-day -day management, a multi-billion dollar company is an occupant that tends to all its own maintenance, property taxes, and insurance. The property is an imperative part of business operations, and leaseholders are very concerned about exteriors. They want a prime location among demographics that predict high traffic and sales. These tenants pay their rent like clockwork every month, and the steady cash flow permits you, the owner, to build equity constantly over the lease term. The worth of the main real estate and the excellent credit of the tenant should enable you to get very positive financing terms. Predictably leveraged with a self-amortizing loan, the assets will be paid off at the end of the original lease term. If the tenant leaves, you still have a valuable property that could be debt-free. When you own these properties, it is important to monitor your lease agings. If you do need to sell, the longer term you have left, the better. If the occupants stay beyond the preliminary term after the asset is paid off, which many do, your investment profits may be increased significantly. If you don't want the trouble of management and continual ongoing expenses presenting themselves, read on. It is essential to invest in a location that is likely to spawn extensive sales for a commercial tenant. If the leaseholder is able to make a huge amount of money in a great location, it is doubtful they will leave following the initial lease term. When buying a net leased property, you should cautiously consider the location you want to procure. It is helpful to use demographic studies and mapping software to compare and contrast the attributes of various businesses to decide on the best one to venture into. Fantastic locations with the best occupants are always in demand and will sell at a premium. It is generally worth it to pay extra to get a premium location. This will enable you to sell the property faster if you decide to sell prior to the end of the lease. Net leased properties with credit tenants have increased in popularity with investors because many investors are receiving very little returns on convertible or liquid assets. Net leased properties with credit tenants can be a harmless, reliable investment if you choose them wisely. If you are interested in a triple net investment property, contact a firm that is versed in the sales and acquisition of such properties. If you have an appetite for more risk, look into value-added properties. While there is little risk in triple net properties, the main thing to consider is the tenant's strength. Publicly traded companies offer transparency as to condition through readily available resources. Inflation should also be considered, since most long-term leases have flat rental rates until the exercise of the option period. I invite you to begin your search for triple net properties. Call a few brokers and see what they have in their inventories. 
Once you've digested the information, take a plunge toward a peaceful and long-term investment. June 6, 2018, 9 o'clock a.m. Technology's impact on the future of commercial real estate. The retail industry has been experiencing disruption due to technological innovations that have pushed a growing number of consumers to mobile purchases and e-commerce transactions. In 2017, nationwide e-retail sales totaled over $409 billion. Amazon accounted for $54.47 billion, and Walmart sold $14 billion in the U.S. alone. By the year 2021, forecasts for global e-retail sales expect the number to reach $603.4 billion U.S. dollars. In tandem, local and national media headlines in the last few years have reported stories of major retail industry giants closing hundreds of brick-and-mortar locations due to steady declines in sales. Among the most notable retailers closing doors or filing for bankruptcy protection are Radio Shack, Gap Inc., Kmart, and Toys R Us. Across the Commercial Property Board, access to information that was once limited to CRE brokers who paid fees for such data is now available to the general public for free. This has removed barriers between commercial real estate owners and prospective tenants. For example, the website 42 Floors provides office space rentals and commercial real estate listings for owners and prospective tenants. A fair amount of information is available for free, and a premium service lets licensed brokers access better qualified prospective tenants. Some companies like CompStack and DealX implement a crowdsource platform by providing lease comparables for public usage, coupled with details like the tenant's name, rent amount, length of lease, and landlord concessions. Real Massive and VTS have even more comprehensive platforms, offering property listings, relevant market data, workflows and information to owners, CRE professionals, and tenants. These are just a few of the startups looking to transform commercial real estate through innovation and by making data transparent and ubiquitous. It's clear that technological innovation has affected many asset classes of real estate, including workspaces, retail shopping centers, distribution centers, offices, and more. With an increasing amount of work and consumer purchases being performed from anywhere on mobile devices that have internet access, employees and consumers are transforming the way they do their jobs, purchase goods and services, and live. Retail stores are reorganizing their traditional infrastructure from a decade ago to better compete with e-commerce giants such as Amazon and Walmart. Because of the amount of information consumers are able to access, Change is taking place in the retail industry. Retail store owners, commercial brokers, and staff are no longer the ones with absolute power. Consumers are not taking a back seat anymore, and the ramifications for the commercial real estate industry cannot be taken lightly. The road to a purchase is no longer a straight line for consumers. Nowadays, they include both traditional store and online channels. Consumers are investigating and learning all there is to know about the product well before going into a physical location, if they ever do. One of the outcomes is that square footage demand for retail space has decreased due to shifts in consumer behavior and buying patterns, efficiencies of the physical store and online channels, 
In many major cities across the U.S., foot traffic has been on a gradual decline. Disruption in the retail market is having a similar influence in manufacturing. Warehousing and distribution markets have experienced an increasing demand due to the yearly growth in online purchases. It should come as no surprise that many large retailers are making investments in extremely complex technical fulfillment sites that are strategically located. Customers can now receive merchandise that is directly shipped from the warehouse inventory instead of retail stores having to keep it within the store. This works out well for retailers since the cost per square foot of warehousing space tends to be a lot less expensive than retail space. In the office class, the integration of technology, mobile devices, and infrastructure empowers workers to work virtually anywhere. Traditional office environments have been places where employees go to perform their jobs Monday through Friday on a 9-to-5 work schedule. People communicated with colleagues and fellow staff and even met with customers. In essence, the original social network was the office. This system was linear, strict, and offered few to no opportunities for personalization and uniqueness. Overall, disruption is a positive thing that brings about progressive change for the disrupted industry. Commercial real estate agents and investors who are open to new methods and who evolve with the latest disruptive technologies should remain market leaders. Innovation will often produce very good results if you're willing to embrace it. If not, you are likely to be left behind. I hope you enjoyed our podcast. We plan on offering this up on a regular basis. Please subscribe, link in, friend up. However, we need to stay engaged. Please stay engaged. Thank you.